The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So today I thought it might be useful to uh, reflect and reflect on, in particular on the nature of our mind, the nature of our heart, and even what we mean by the heart and mind, because it can be confusing. And uh, in this uh, early Buddhist tradition, it's really important that we feel empowered and somewhat independent, self-reliant in terms of doing the investigation. So whatever the teachings of the Buddha or the teachings of our teachers are encouraging us to do, we should be feel empowered that well, other people with busy lives, difficult lives or whatever, they were in the same predicament and they found enough safety, enough time to do this inner work because somehow they found that it really supported them in the outer work of living and getting along and contributing and belonging and now no longer or at least lessening how we contribute to suffering for ourselves and others. So what do we mean by the mind, the heart? And most of you know we use that word mind-heart as the translation for citta, the Pali term. And uh, it's really important that we at least open ourselves to the idea that um, the heart, the mind, is this experience right now that we're having. That in a way, the world that we know and the relationships that we have, the hopes and dreams, the problems, all of that that we call my life, my experience, is the mind and heart. So I'm not saying there isn't something called the external world. I'm just saying that right now our experience is the experience of the heart and mind. There is the activity because of the way that we're sensitive. Different experiences are coming and going and they're being known. And this really explains or um, encapsulates the entirety, the totality of our experience. So this is uh, right now, whatever your experience is, my experience is, this is an experience of the mind. This is happening here in my heart. Whatever I'm knowing, whatever I'm feeling, whatever reactivity there might be, it's happening here. So, you know, we talk about the heart and mind as having two basic um, qualities, or there is this quality of knowing, like somehow we're sensitive, and that sensitivity, what we're sensitive to is being known. So that's consciousness, the knowing mind. There's something that illuminates or reveals what the sensitive heart is sensitive to. And then the other half, very much related to the knowing, are all the ways that all the objects of experience that can be known. 
like seeing can be known and hearing can be known and thinking can be known and that movement of emotion can be felt or known and so we can know the objects of the five physical senses of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching. And we can know the objects of the mind, the activity of mind. So we have this activity of body and this activity of mind, these six things, the five physical senses, the activity of mind. They're like five or rather six rivers that are always in motion as long as we're alive the body-mind, this right here, our life, is sensitive to these six things, and the knowing mind, in some fashion, is knowing some combination of these six things that are flowing onward, always, never-ending. Even with the eyes closed, seeing is happening. Even when the body is really still, the flow of sensation is happening. Even when there's no obvious smell, smelling is still happening. Right? The thinking mind, the imagining mind, is still thinking and imagining, even when it gets very quiet. It's just that the quality of the thoughts, the quality of the mental imagining, gets really refined, really um, still. And it's useful to realize that as far as we can experience, there's nothing really outside of this interrelated unfolding of knowing and the objects that are being known. This is being known really summarizes in an indisputable way our experience as a human being. This is being known. When we think back on our most beautiful experiences as a human being and our most difficult experiences, really that moment was something being known. There was an experience being felt or known. Now that might, what we were knowing might have been quite complex or quite intense or quite sublime and, and refined and beautiful, but it was something being known something being known, something being known. So this pattern of something being known has a little <laughs> ripple, like part of that dynamic of something being known is this sense of self-centeredness. In a way, it's like a loop, a little virus that has infected this organic, normal process of something being known, something being known. And so part of what's arising and coloring this is being known is the interpretation, the perception, the view that I'm knowing or that this experience that's being known is happening to me. So it's kind of a self-dramatic, self-referential virus that's there. And it's just the way it is, and it's there all the time. But it really affects how this whole thing called my life unfolds. And one way to understand it, this is, you know, in the tradition, whether it's just legend or actual history, but, you know, it's said that the Buddha's first talk on the Four Noble Truths, this kind of outline of our predicament as a human being, it was really about uh, his reflections on the middle way, 
how not to always be stuck in this self-centered loop, this this kind of cycling of stressful ways of being, stressful ways of relating. Yeah, I, I see that some people are commenting. I don't know what's going on with the internet here at the center, but I do get a message from time to time that the connection is unstable. Um, but hopefully, for whatever reason, it will stabilize and uh, be good enough for today. Sorry about that, everybody. Yeah, so that first talk that the Buddha gave and around the middle way, we often interpret that simple teaching about the middle way as like, oh yeah, not too much to this extreme and not too much to that extreme. And that's the middle way. But it's a little bit, uh, the Buddhist teachings on the middle way is a little bit more provocative. He's basically saying, notice, um, notice how the mind is inclined to react or relate in this way, and notice how it's inclined to relate and react in this other way. And the way forward is to be aware of those two impulses and to realize they're not helpful. So it's really a step into not knowing, or I know that these two aren't helpful. And I'll describe these two ways, you know, in the tradition, one way is eternalism, the other is annihilationism. But those are sort of awkward words. The eternalism is more about, from the sense of self, wanting to be able to dominate my experience. So get my act together so that this fundamental experience of something being known, something being known, and that's the totality of my experience. There's always something being known. It's always changing because seeing is changing, hearing is changing, sensations are changing, smells and tastes are changing, and more importantly, mental activity, my likes and dislikes, all of those different emotional patterns, they're also changing. So we're in this flow, being known, being known, being known, and from that self-centered point of view, that's very destabilizing, because I want to get solid ground. So one approach that the Buddha is saying, check it out, it, it doesn't work, is this approach of domination. Okay, I'm in this fluid space called my life, and I'm going to dominate it. I'm going to gain the competence, gain the power to get solid ground, unshakable, solid ground, so I can locate myself in that solid ground. And we do that in any number of ways, by like trying to get people to like us, or having a lot of money, or having the sort of psychological truth. Yeah. I'm going to pause when I see that my internet connection is unstable and so I don't you know, miss it. But I was just saying, like, that domination is I want to have the truth. That's another way that we practice domination. Dominating the insecurity, vulnerability that we're beginning to experience being a sensitive human being, checking out our existence and we realize how unstable and fluid it is. And it triggers, from that self-point of view, I want to dominate this 
I really want to lock it down so I can have what seems to me personally to be security. And we do that. And then, of course, that will frustrate us from that self-centered point of view because we never get the solidity, the permanence, the um, yeah, sense of safety in that way that we want it in a way that's satisfying. So then we tend to go to uh, the annihilationism, giving up, wanting to be done with it, including just give me some good distractions so that I'm not aware of my existential exposure here to how fluid life is, how wild the present moment is. I just don't want to know it. So either get me out of here or give me some good distractions because I'm tired of having tri-domination and always getting um, failing at it, basically. And so then we slide to the other end of the extreme, wanting to give up, wanting to get out, wanting to be distracted, disconnected, in denial. And then we swing back and forth because as hard as we may try to stay distracted and in denial, <laughs> the fluid nature, the uncertain nature keeps creeping in. And then it will trigger like, okay, I can't stand this. How can I fix it? How can I dominate this? And we'll get, you know, back in that saddle, ride back into the battle. I can do this. We'll fail. We'll slip into some despair and giving up. And the Buddha's first teaching in the tradition, you know, traditionally the first teaching is understand these two extremes and study in your own life, in your own experience, they just don't work. Domination doesn't work personally, inter, just in my own heart and mind, and it doesn't work culturally, politically in the long run. <laughs> it seems like it works in the short run. People keep trying it. And nor does giving up work and sort of identifying as a victim, uh, nothing can change, I give up, just give me a, a peaceful little corner, let the world go to hell, I just want my little cabin in the woods or, you know, your equivalent of that, um, where I can just avoid the complexities of life because it's just too much and I don't know how to do that dance. I don't know how to show up because we keep thinking we should show up from this personal point of view. It's all we know. So the Buddha's alternative, the so-called middle way, it's not the middle point between those two extremes. It's not this way and not this way. And so the way we could sort of talk about it is it's a way of, of uh, challenging our understanding. So instead of falling into a pattern of domination or falling into a pattern of giving up, we realize I don't have enough data to go this way or that way. So I'm going to take the stance of being somebody who's curious and open and basically studying in the most simple, you know, right to the very basics of our experience, the fundamentals of our experience in the present moment. Because we presume without a deep investigation that domination should deliver what we want. 
or that giving up and being distracted should deliver what we want. But we kind of know. I mean, certainly we see it clearly enough when we're observing other people and they're on a domination kick. Like, even with their body, I'm going to get my body into shape, I'm going to somehow defeat the aging process or whatever, you know, or someone's in a, you know, getting obsessed about something that ultimately has no meaning. You know, they started out gardening and it was just a way to relax. It was great. And then over the years, they got totally obsessed about having the best, you know, tomatoes that, you know, were grown 200 years ago and they're the sweetest and they're the best. And any little, what turned, you know, initially was like a skillful hobby can turn into this way of denying the complexity of life. You become this expert on some little thing, whatever it might be, you know, ham radios or, <laughs> or kitchen counters or, you know, the best way to make ice, a cold press coffee or whatever it might be. And it's like a distraction to keep us away from our existential position, which is we're living in this very, very unimaginably fluid place called here and now. And ultimately, there's no denying that. But we try to deny it through domination and through distraction and get me the heck out of here strategies. And then if we were fortunate, we hear the teachings from someone like the Buddha and we realize well, it makes a lot of sense that I should do this primal foundational research about what is my situation here as a human being so that my response or what I do with this life really comes, flows naturally like this is what Dharma all is all about. It's about aligning with nature. We have always been nature. Whatever, you know, our most neurotic thought, that's nature. Our most beautiful, generous thought is nature. Nothing is outside of this interrelated unfolding of causes and conditions. And our particular taste of nature is what we call mind, heart. But see, we always set, you know, the, the contaminated, the effects of the virus that has contaminated, it makes us imagine that somehow something stands apart from nature, me. And then that sets up things like greed, hatred, fear, and just being disconnected. Because that perspective that something stands apart, a permanent something stands apart, or is independent of the interrelated unfolding of nature, it causes how the mind, how we show up in the world to be distorted. Because we can start imagining that something's permanent when actually everything is in motion. That something is satisfying when nothing, no experience can be satisfying because it's changing. That something is self when it's just this impersonal movement. That something's beautiful when it's just what it is. It's neither ugly nor beautiful. 
this duality of good and bad, arises from that mistaken sense of being apart, something apart. Because from that sense of me being located apart, then there are things I consider a threat and things I consider good. And then that creates the whole duality of good and bad. Now we have to play in that world of good and bad. I'm not saying that it's something to dismiss. That's just making duality another bad thing or good thing, right? So we see this predicament, you know, swinging between dominance and giving up. We see how that self-centered orientation, our life becomes more and more animated by greediness, wanting, even wanting, you know, not all wanting appears really toxic, but that identification with desire, with sense experience, and the um, identifying with whatever frustrates getting what we want. We want peace. We want stability, we want safety, something arises that seems to get in the way. We feel like we have rights to hate that, to imagine that that thing is bad because it's threatening my safety. As opposed to, and it's not that the analysis is necessarily off, but the, the kind of way the mind is constructing meaning of turning it into something evil, when it's just what it is. So the, the question is, this middle way, this path of understanding, of, of using like our fundamental relationship, we still have to raise the kids, of course, we still have to pay the bills, but in the context of taking care of our responsibilities, our primary orientation is using life to wake up, really valuing the stability of present moment awareness from a place of humility so that we can observe the nature of the heart and mind, this moment, the space of this moment, from the perspective of knowing that we don't know. So I'm really sincerely listening, opening, receiving, being intimate, so that it's like I mentioned sometimes collecting really beautiful, good data. And it's that exposing, in a sense, our heart, sensitive heart to the truth, through the stability of present moment awareness, that changes who we are in the deepest level, which in Buddhism we call the underlying view, from self-view to the letting go. It's sort of, we're wearing out self-view by collecting data, by being present in the soft and open, curious way. And what happens is things are coming and going and being known in our experience moment by moment. And that the purity of that data challenges that underlying self-view. And it wears it down. It can't hold up self-view because it doesn't align with reality that everything is nature coming and going, doing its thing in this inter interrelated way, being mindful with enough stability, enough continuity, enough integrity, like really letting the data speak, letting reality touch the heart, 
it challenges that all of our self-centered notions, all of the varieties of self-centeredness. And something arises out of that, which we could describe as a, a kind of um, freedom of alignment with reality, or coming home, not, uh, not in a disalignment with all the related distortions that arise because of the misalignment, And everything, in a sense, lines up. And that personal emotional experience is, in the deepest way, I mean, these words are simplistic, but in the deepest way, this heart, this mind, this body belongs. Everything belongs. Even with a world that is so clearly off in so many ways and unjust in so many ways, isn't it true even with the conditions as they are, isn't it true that in moments we we touch this experience where the emotional flavor of the experience is everything's okay. Everything's okay. What's coming to mind right now, I hadn't thought about it before, but you know that talk that Martin Luther King gave before he, very uh, soon before he was shot and killed, where he says, I've been to the mountaintop. And I don't know if you've listened to that speech recently, but it's just uh, there's a, there's a kind of uh, power in his words. Um, he's probably a pretty wise and intuitive person, given what he kind of put up with and how he navigated his life with so much kind of focused on him. <laughs> and a lot of it, uh, you know, was, you know, a lot of fear and hate and violence. And... Uh, just hearing those words, like, he, I, for me, it my interpretation is his articulation of in the middle, I mean, who, who didn't understand how much work needed to be done than Martin Luther King. And yet, that, that kind of power of those words, I've been to the mountaintop, like, I've touched a piece, a release, I know that flavor in my heart doesn't mean the work is done. It just means that the work can be done knowing that flavor of release. And this is what makes, you know, we're all activists in some way, even if you're raising kids or trying to be a good baker or whatever it is. It's like, this is how we're contributing. This is how we're undoing the cycles of suffering. Whatever we do in our lives has to be in this context. And the work of our lives is done best when we're cultivating these tastes of this unconditional freedom. A freedom that isn't dependent on the world being perfect, isn't dependent on there no longer being any suffering in the world. And we want to put the two together. It's not an either or. or either I'm a spiritual seeker and I'm out to find that deep release that tells me everything's okay, or I care about the world, I care about injustice, I care about my children, I care about my community, I really want to take care of these problems in the world. And I think that's, uh, I think actually that's 
probably one of those domination ideologies, you know, to kind of keep us from doing the work that we can do. Yeah, I just said in case it, it got uh, unstable there, the internet connection. Yeah, I think that can be a kind of domination to keep us from doing our practice. This idea that we have to choose between caring about the world and and uh, accessing, tasting, and intuiting the possibility of real freedom, the heart's release. And I think in terms of visioning and imagining, we want to imagine these two things need to work together. That there really isn't any way to be a good partner, good parent, a good citizen, to be um, engaged in making the world a more just place. There's no way to do that without really doing the spiritual work. And this is, this is really important, there's no way to do the spiritual work unless it's being tested and integrated through our showing up for these very complex, messy problems that may never completely be fixed. The work of injustice, right? who knows when that's going to be done? Maybe it will never be done. And we have to be prepared to be willing to do the work, even if it's never going to be done, because it's still good. Wouldn't that still be good work? just like around climate change. I mean, imagining the worst scenario that the planet, weather and the climate is going to shift in a way that, you know, many, if not most of the species will die out, become extinct. Doesn't mean we should give up. Doesn't mean giving up would be the most helpful strategy. And this is where this is where the um, spiritual work really supports the activist work and how the activist work really helps the spiritual work not become idealistic or conceptual, but it becomes real and actual. Like bringing that sense of space, that pervasive kindness into spaces where there's a lot of hate and a lot of violence and a lot of injustice, and not learning how not to lose that sense of space and that sense of kindness and compassion, even when confronted with these really challenging circumstances. So I want to end by um, just uh, emphasizing that that path of the middle way, it does depend on enough safety. You know, we need to feel safe enough to step away from our habits of domination and our habits of trying to escape. We have to be, because it's, it's a real step towards humility, because we're abandoning the only two strategies we know. And so then as a, I mean, just to put it in more graphic terms, as an animal, frightened animal, we're sort of putting down all of the strategies evolution has taught us and because we're in the process of just, you know, for the sake of the uh, metaphor, from being an animal to being a spiritual seeker. 
and um, how and it's really going to teach us how to be an animal <laughs> in the deepest sense, like how to be an animal without succumbing to fear, hate, and being identified with greed, being identified with desire. And there's any number of ways to uh, support this need for safety to do this work. I was reading an article that was recently in Tricycle Magazine. Uh, You can probably get it online. It's How to Fight Without Hating. And it's written by Valerie Brown. She's a Dharma teacher in the Thich Nhat Hanh tradition and an African-American woman. And uh, she talks about a, a teaching in Thich Nhat Hanh's style of practice. Uh, if you don't know, he's a wonderful Vietnamese Buddhist monk who taught in the West for many, many decades. And he's quite old man now, back in Vietnam. And But it's a yeah, really powerful tradition. And one of the real s- skills that Thich Nhat Hanh had and his Sangha, his community have, is this how to have a very integrated community-based practice. So it doesn't just overemphasize the meditation practice, but it really also emphasizes community work and a lot of these emotional emotionally healing practices, and one of them is called touching the earth. And it comes right out of the early Buddhist tradition, this uh, talks that the Buddha gave at a couple times, where he used the image of the earth as a symbol of, um, yeah, of belonging and integration, both in terms of his own awakening process, and you see the statues including the one behind me, where the Buddha's hand is touching the earth. It's a very potent symbol, where he's basically calling on the depth and breath, the enormity of the earth, to um, really causes and conditions the, the truth of the way that it is. And then the earth is used in other talks that the Buddha gave as like its capacity to not be afraid of anything, whether someone urinates on the earth or there's flowers on the earth or the earth has this like example of being unmoved, not dead, not not sensitive, but it has such a vast perspective. It sees far back into the past. It understands the enormity and totality of the way it is. So it has this profound equanimity. So this ritual, like in the Thich Nhat Hanh tradition of touching the earth, it has a particular form of bowing and you lie flat, sometimes flat on the earth, palms up. I mean, there are different ways to do it. And some of you know the yoga pose, savasana, the corpse pose where you're lying on your back. But you can find your own way of lying on the grass. Remember as kids, you'd spin around and then lie and you just feel the sense of the world spinning or stare up at the clouds and the skies or the night sky and the stars. There's any number of ways of opening to the vastness 
looking over a lake, looking over the ocean, staring off in the sky and sitting on the side of a hill. But there's any number of ways of stepping out of our smallness and opening to something that's bigger than the difficulties, the ups and downs in our own life. And we want to use these natural elements, even like a big tree. People, you know, who have a connection, just sitting under a really big mature tree. And it's just there's something about like, yeah, it's been around for a while. And it's really connected. There's, there's real power in these archetypes, these symbols. And we want to take, a, uh, take advantage so just explore how that might look in your own life. How might you, in simple ways, doesn't need to be weird or unusual what you're doing, how might you connect with the enormity of the unknown, the enormity of the present moment, the earth, the vastness of the sky, so that by comparison, the painful dramas that are real, from their own perspective, are now being met with a vastness that is like a healing balm. It's a little bit like when we're really caught up with the drama and then we talk to a couple friends who went through the same thing and came out the other end. Even in that little way, there's more space now around the drama in our life, realizing that other people have been through it. So I encourage you to experiment with this and you can also just Google touching the earth ceremony or touching the earth practice Thich Nhat Hanh or Plum Village which is one of Thich Nhat Hanh's main monasteries in, in France. So Plum Village touching the earth practice and then you'll get, you'll find one of the uh, monasteries websites that has the traditional practice in that tradition. But I really encourage you to make it real for yourself. You might need to use or want to use their format a couple times, but then really make it real so you're comfortable with it. And just experiment with cultivating this safety like you really belong, so you feel like you've got some space around those habits of wanting to dominate the moment, wanting to get away from the moment, escape the moment of your life. Really nice to connect with everybody today. Thanks, everybody. Have a good week. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.